Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome to this week's 1% Better episode. And I am delighted to share this one. Probably a good time to share it as always. Never a bad time to share these episodes, I think, but one where we're on lockdown and living through the coronavirus pandemic, we're probably facing challenges around resilience and we might be working from home and juggling a million things. That might lead to a sense of overwhelm and burnout. And my guest in this week's episode is an expert on all of those. Her name is Siobhan Murray, an accredited psychotherapist, life coach, very experienced public speaker, trainer, and best-selling author of the book, The Burnout Solution. And in this episode, we talk about her own journey, uh, how she became an expert in this area, and we go into the details around what is burnout, what is stress, what is overwhelm, and how resilience can help you deal with all of those, how you can develop resilience and tools that Siobhan has used for, for herself and, and for the people she's worked with to overcome all of those challenges. And just to kind of append to that, this one would fit in well with the emotional intelligence series that I'm releasing in the next couple of weeks, the first episodes of that, and resilience, building resilience, self-management, how you self-regulate are all parts of that. So when that series does get running, this one will be referenced during that. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. Just a couple of other quick call outs earlier this week. I did a one minute Monday on the three weeks that we have for extended coronavirus restrictions in Ireland and that it's a perfect opportunity to develop a new habit, or stop an old one that you don't like and doing that on a day-by-day basis, trying to focus on developing it or resisting it. Check that out if you're interested in joining the 1% Better Slack community. There's a link in this episode show notes as well. As always, please do, if you enjoy the show, give me an email, get in touch, give us a rating or review. And as always, I always recommend and ask kindly if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you listen to it that's great that helps with rankings that helps with other folks seeing it and then checking it out and listening to it so there you go please do enjoy this week's episode with the excellent Siobhan Murray good luck hey folks welcome to this week's episode of one percent better or potentially uh, speaking emotionally, I'm not sure on the terminology I'm giving to this uh, EQ or emotional intelligence series just yet, but that doesn't matter. The content is still going to be very informative, very useful, as my guest, who I've been looking forward to talking to for a long time, will have a lot of really interesting stuff to share. So Siobhan Murray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be talking to you. Great to chat to you. I think we probably connected maybe a year or two ago and I've been following you on Twitter and on, on LinkedIn on the last over that period of time. You have been quite busy of late. I've seen you doing a lot of speaking events, a lot of presentations. You're really getting out there with your message, which I suppose predominantly is around helping people deal with stress overcoming overwhelm, building resilience, and living a more probably fulfilled lifestyle. That's my, my take. You can tell me more specifically. Well, I suppose I got I got, sort of got into this area of specializing with burnout um, about two years ago. 
And it just, it was sort of before it became that buzzword that it is now. And my whole aim is to get people to understand how to manage themselves in the world to avoid burnout before it happens. Because for the one-to-one clients I work with, if they have experienced burnout, if they've hit that wall, they could end up being off work for three months, six months. The the recovery from a fully-fledged bout of burnout is hardcore. Yeah, definitely want to hear about the, I suppose, the the signals and the trigger, the signs that somebody is coming towards it that they might ignore. What what I would say is, as well, this episode is going to, going to tie in with the whole area of self management within emotional intelligence, and, and 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 it very much naturally fits in that area. When you talk about, I suppose, being able to deal with burnout and and, and reaching a break point, and reading your, uh, your your story on your website, it seems like you've kind of lived that journey yourself maybe can you talk to us about how you got to a point where you were hitting a a break point yourself you were reaching burnout i'd love to hear a bit about your backstory for certainly for folks listening well and i think it's interesting because just using just going back to the term burnout there there is a misperception that burnout is purely occupational and that you get burnt out because your job is very demanding and Um, your boss is very demanding, your career is very demanding. But here's the other side of it. The flip side of this is that it can also be your personality type, which that's what it was for me. So in all the careers, and I've had very varied careers to date, um, in everything I've done, I've I've actually loved everything I've done. I worked in the music industry, um, both here in Ireland and in the UK. And I worked for some incredible artists like Elton John, drum and bass artists called Goldie. I worked in record companies. And yes, it was fast paced. And my personality type, which I now know, but I didn't know back then. I didn't even really know probably till about seven or eight years ago. Um, and it's it's a shame because I think if this is something when we talk about emotional intelligence, that if we were to able to teach I think students from secondary school up more about their personality types and who they are than people, regardless of their academic ability, would end up then going towards working in industries that they were more suited. So, and I think it's really important because here I was in this very social environment in in my 20s and probably where I experienced burnout the most when the first time when I came home was because I was drinking in order to be in these social settings. What I didn't realize is that I'm an introvert. I can stand on stages and talk to a thousand people, no problem, because I'm talking about something that I know that I really understand. That's my area of expertise. But the social networking and the social engagement, the talking to people. So back in my 20s, I didn't realize I was actually an introvert. So I became very dependent on alcohol as a perceived distressor and and I took that right up into I'm 13 years not drinking now and and that's why I said it took me to giving up drinking to realize actually I am an introvert I don't like those social occasions nothing to do with not having drink but I can do them for short periods of time so I experienced burnout the first time would have been back in my late 20s um came back sort of did a bit of a re-evaluation 
changed careers. I set up the Ronald McDonald Children's Charity here in Dublin. And we didn't have one at the time. We didn't have a Ronald House. So worked to get the Ronald House built and I was still drinking. I was still doing that social in engagement. My job was still very social. And I was there for about three years, but I was housed in the McDonald's head office in Dublin. And once the house was built, McDonald's Corporation offered me a job as head of communications. And I, at this point, three years, knowing everybody in the the building. So I took the job. And what I have realized for me is I'm a terrible employee. I being in that very confined space of, of the rules and regulations the corporate world was, again, still drinking, uh, had my first child and I was, I was a single mum and I was utterly burnt out. And people might say, oh, but you know, you were working and you had a child. It was more than that. It was even in my pregnancy, even prior to my pregnancy, I could feel the same thing that had happened back in my 20s was happening again, that sheer exhaustion. And it wasn't my workload. Mm. It was the inability for my personality to type. Being in that open plan office, even that, that was more exhausting than my workload. Mm. So many things came up for me there just that I want to just touch on, excuse me. And I would, I'm an introvert absolutely as well. Um, and I'd say from 16 up till about uh, 35, I probably didn't really know that. I kind of had a sense of it and I started reading stuff and I would have drank a fair bit in my 20s as well and and just to fit in and it would have been like the week would have been a roller coaster because you would have peaked at the weekends and then the, the, the downer of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday just because of the withdrawal and, and just feeling like God, you know, and and confidence is just completely gone and being able to talk to somebody in in work or whatever, I would feel myself flushing up, you know, so just not knowing there was something underlying all that was, was huge when, when you kind of discovered it. And I think doing coaching, becoming better at wear, wearing, tuning into your own self all, all very much helped. And the book by Susan Cain, Quiet, I'm sure you've read that about introverts was like, so eye-opening and it was like she was writing stuff coming out of my own head as well so what was it that the the point when you realized you were an introvert what was it did you do a a personality assessment or I I, well when I really really when it drove home when I was researching the book Mm. actually um so I know I said about seven years ago I realized I, I didn't want to go out I didn't want to go out in the same way that I used to and in fact I don't think I ever really wanted to go out back in my drinking days, but I did what everybody else was doing because that's what you did. You worked all week and you went out on a Friday evening. So in order to fit in, as you know, to to be able, if I was meeting you back in my drinking days, if I was meeting you, I would have had a couple of glasses before I left the house. And then if I was meeting you in a pub, I would have walked in. I might have acknowledged you sitting at the table, but I would have walked straight to the bar to get a drink in order to have that drink in my hand. Because it's, it wasn't even Dutch courage. I can walk into a bar now happily to meet you and we'll walk straight over to you, sit down. Those, if there's two or three people, I'm absolutely fine. It's the large crowds. But when I was researching the book and I, you know, I had done the Meyer-Briggs testing where you learn about your introvert and your extrovert and the different types of personalities, but that was still too broad for me. What I really honed in on was more about the energy 
that if the last this last week I spoke on Saturday, I spoke at an event on Sunday and on Tuesday evening. So I I was tired, uh, not from the event, but from all the interaction either side of each event. So when I know I'm around large crowds of people, when I come home, I need silence, solitude, quiet time. I need to know that I haven't scheduled in one-to-one clients, um, that I, I mind myself so I can literally, it's like a battery, recharge my energy levels. And interestingly, for an extrovert, if you have an extrovert who works as a salesperson and they're on the road all day long and they're not interacting with people, that can be soul destroying for somebody because they need, they get that buzz from the Friday night, being in the packed pub, talking to people, being in the open plan office. That's where they get their energy from. Leave them on their own and they're walking around lost. So for me, the introvert extrovert is never about, you know, whether you're shy, you coach, I coach, you know, we do things like this. It's not about being shy or the inability to talk to people. It's where you get your energy levels from. Totally. And and the example similar to you said there, the one that really hit home for me from, from Susan's book is, and it kind of normalizes it for people, is when you go to a party and I would be terrible at small talk, but I could talk to the, this person beside me about a like a, a coaching passionately for two hours and then at the end of it you talk do the small talk because you've got all the really important stuff out of the way and it's just kind of tuning into to that whereas the extrovert would probably be the opposite yeah they would happily do the small talk the the palm pressing the the you know the person that's the great host or hostess who can just flit around the place for for the introvert that's just exhausting yeah totally totally agree um at what point when do you decided to give up drinking what was that like and how did you deal with the you know the the days and weeks and months afterwards what were the the tools or or support did you put put in place well that's that's really interesting because i i've been asked um you know well are you an alcoholic i don't know i've never given it a label i didn't tools and, and support i didn't go to aa i by the time I gave up drinking, I was drinking seven nights a week um, and I had two very young children and I had my big corporate job. And what I did, I gave up, I went out Halloween night and I drank a little bit too much. And I said the next day, that's it. I'm giving up for the month of November. Yeah. Everyone does that. Yeah. So this is, this is the only tool I did. And this worked for me. Not going to say it's going to work for everyone. Six o'clock was when I would pour my first glass of wine every night. So at six o'clock for the month of November, I poured a diet seven up into a wine glass and I drank that. So I still had the ritual of having picked the kids up from crash, come home. And instead of unscrewing the bottle, it was a can of diet seven up. And after that, the first year, and I won't lie, the first year I thought was difficult. I look back in hindsight and even, even going through it, I was uncomfortable. I didn't know what to do with myself in social settings because I was so used to going to the bar to get the glass of wine. Um, but after that, it, it actually became liberating that you could go somewhere and go, no, it's all right. I don't want to drink. Thank you. 
and 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 own it. And I think that's really important. And especially in Ireland, anyway, we're such a drinking culture that you know, are you on antibiotics or you know what's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, so to be able to own it and to then also know your cutoff points for some people who don't drink or have given up drinking, they can stay out till three, four in the morning and have great fun. For me, 11, 12, I'm done if I've gone out in the evening. Or, you know, I, I you change, your life changes. I don't go to the pub because I've it's, it's not my social setting anymore. But going out for dinner or having people around, for me, it's more going for a walk, meeting someone for a walk during the day or the early evening and going for a coffee. So, but the, the finding something else to pour into that glass, that was, for me, the biggest tool or trick that I did that worked. Mm, interesting yeah I, I gave up drinking in 20 the start of 2018 um for a year i met a bet with a friend and the two of us did it for the 12 months um and like that i remember three months in i had to go to galway for a 40th birthday on st patrick's day and there was an ireland rugby match on and it was like a perfect <laughs> storm of seven or eight kind of tempting things that i managed to get through the day but i used i just started drinking non-alcoholic beer around then as well and that was like a, the substitute in a similar sort of way and it tasted pretty good and like that as you kind of build the momentum um it kind of just kept going I, I went and kept 2019 completely dry as well and uh i was doing well and until last weekend i went away for a golf weekend and i actually had some beers for the first time and yeah i, d- I didn't miss it to be honest but um not not going back L- big time on it for sure so when you stopped drinking and you know I suppose, did new focus come? Did new passions and interests come for you? Is that where the whole focus on working around burnout and the coaching elements came up? Well, it was at that point that I I experienced, just before I gave up drinking, I experienced another massive bout of burnout in working in corporate. And I left and I studied psychotherapy. And I was just doing an evening course, that evening course very quickly within two weeks. The lecturer said, why don't you do a degree? So I joined into a degree program um, a couple of weeks late, did my degree. And it was, I suppose, as well, being a single parent, I wanted something that was going to work around the kids um, because I'm as what I call an individual. I individually parent in that I am solely responsible for them emotionally, financially and physically. So. I wanted to be there. Um, I also financially couldn't afford to pay a mortgage, pay crash fees and be outside the home. It just wasn't going to work. And so I, I studied and, you know, for anyone listening who's thinking of becoming a psychotherapist, it's an incredible job, career, whatever way you want to do it. But it's actually really, it's hard because you have to do your own personal therapy I don't think there's anything else out there that makes you do something similar in order to be able to deal with people. Mm-hmm. And from year two, you're dealing, you're working with clients and in a room on your own, and you are solely responsible for their mental health in that hour that you're with them. And that's a huge responsibility. It's it's something I'm incredibly grateful that I get to do. Um, and the day that I think you stop wanting to be in the room and be present for that client is the day that you should not be doing it anymore. But I also found over um, the years once I qualified and was working that 
there was a lot of people, and I had experienced it myself in going to therapy, um, that would go to therapy and would talk about their back stuff. And it was all about talking about their back stuff. And people were coming to me going, okay, but I've done that. I've been to therapy before, or, you know, we've, we've got so far, what next? And I wasn't qualified in coaching. So I decided to um, do a course on neuro-linguistic programming. And then I qualified as a master practitioner and in life coaching because I wanted to be able to give people the tools to go, okay, your back stuff is what got you here. That's where maybe you brought stuff that's not working for you. But how are we going to change the way you view the world? Not necessarily change who you are, but how you view the world and interact in the world. Hmm. That's yeah, very interesting because a lot of times if I talk to a coach, we're typically looking forward and you know, you're out of bounds when somebody starts talking back. I'm not a qualified counselor or psychotherapist, so I can't delve into your past, even though you you have an urge in some ways to kind of ask questions and probe there. It's a it's an ethical line I suppose you have to be very aware of, you know. Yeah, and I think for me that's why I suppose what I bring to the coaching table is that I still see my supervisor every month. I I am still fully accredited. So I bring that. So I am in a position to go, okay, in the first couple of sessions, let's look at your backstory. Let me see what those behaviors are and to hold that client in a safe space, but to not have them all the sessions turn into therapy sessions because that's not what it's about. It's about going, okay, you, I, I describe it as somebody sitting in front of the, the movies and they're sitting in a seat and in front of them is somebody who's a little bit bigger than their eye line. So they can't see the movie properly. There's a bit of it missing and it makes them annoyed and they're irritated with what they're seeing in front of them and the experience of being at the movies. Well, it's literally like stand up, move across the cinema to a seat where there isn't sitting someone sitting in front of you and that way you get a better view so you're not changing what's happening you haven't uplifted yourself to live on the top of a mountain your life is still the same that view is still the same you're viewing it differently mm, interesting perspective of it when, when you were talking about burnout and I guess even if you are enjoying what you're doing, you can still face burnout. I've I've read a, a, a I suppose one of those quotes or whatever about when it's <clears throat> if you're not passionate about it, you can burn out. But when you're really passionate about it, it it's not like working at all. Is that? I'm probably not paraphrasing that correctly, but do you or have you sensed that with with clients, or or, or do you think no matter what you're doing, you can burn out from it, even if you love it? Oh, I absolutely think you can burn out. There are consultants, nurses, care workers, uh, social workers who love, dearly love what they do. Uh, they wouldn't be doing what they do. And they are probably at the forefront of being burned out. And I think, you know, if you look at industries like that, you're going to deal with an awful lot of compassion fatigue as well, where, where their lack of compassion comes in. You can have teachers who love doing what they're doing but maybe because of politics, because of the way a school is run, because the way the government imposes certain rules and regulations around what they do, they get burnt out. Um, you can have people who stay at home and looking after being a caregiver for a sick child whom they adore and love and, and absolutely will do anything for. 
they can get burnt out because it's burnout. If you're ultimately with burnout, if you're not minding yourself, you will get burnt out, whether you love your job or you don't love your job. Yeah, no, agreed. So as we kind of move along your story a little bit more, in 2018, you were, I suppose, commissioned to do a documentary for, for RTE, was it? Stressed. That's right, yeah, it was RTE. Um, it was called Stressed. It was a two-part documentary which looked at five volunteers from around the country. And it was done in conjunction with Science Ireland. So they were taken off. They were properly tested. Their stress levels, their cortisol levels, um, heart rate, all of that good stuff from the science side was all monitored, uh, mood questionnaires. And then I worked with three of them um, over a course of 12 weeks with no medical intervention and on how to reduce their stress levels. I think it's important to say stress is important. We need stress. This whole thing that the wellness industry is sort of putting out there of lead a stress-free life. Well, if we didn't have the stress response, if a car pulled out in front of us, we wouldn't automatically jam on the brakes. So it's really important for your listeners to understand stress is really important. Um, it is when it becomes unmanageable levels of stress. And that's what we were seeing with the five, the five different volunteers. They're all in different walks of life. Um, that how do we, they couldn't change their lives. It was one amazing gentleman. He was left school at 14, had his own family, was a grandfather, young man. He was 40. And he was commuting two hours a day up and two hours a day home to go to DCU to study nursing. Phenomenal man. So he couldn't change that. He was in his final year. He was about to embark. That he this was his this is what he was doing. It wasn't a case of let's change what you're doing, change your job. So we had to find a way to get him, give him the tools in order to be able to reduce his stress levels so he could complete, which Everybody then got tested at the end of the 12 weeks back to Science Ireland and all of them had significantly reduced their cortisol levels, their heart rates. There was positive results on all five. Mm. And obviously after 12 weeks, you would hope that the habits or practices they've taken on board have been embedded and, and will c continue on. Yeah, it was. Uh, and, you know, you, you stay in contact with people like that. You don't just let them go at the end of 12 weeks. So for me, I still saw my three volunteers um, over the course of another few months. Just it was in short, it was in longer time frames. So it wasn't every week. It was every two weeks, every three weeks um, to ensure that they were doing that. But it wasn't cameras are off. Let me go back to, to being clenching the steering wheel and really stressed. Or for one of mine, there was massive sleep issues. And, you know, roll on two years later. And I know with Steffi, her, she was the one with sleep um, issues. Her sleep is still phenomenal. She's sleeping really well. So they were, they, the, the, the volunteers saw what the changes they could do, how it could impact them. And they weren't easy. Those changes, change is not easy. Change hurts. We want to just slide back in old behavioral patterns. Sure. Sure, sure, definitely. When you, when I mention stress, burnout, and overwhelm, can you maybe distinguish the three? So that I suppose sometimes do you find people using them interchangeably? Are there clear distinctions? And and maybe talking about the signals or warning signs of 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 each that come up, people might 
if if listening might trigger something for them? So the way I describe it, stress keeps us safe. Um, you know, go back to caveman days and the bear is coming to attack you. So your stress response is either fight, flight or freeze. Um, unfortunately, freeze could end up being uh, not not keeping you safe, but it is a stress response. The fight or flight is and that's still there. That's an automatic response that happens to the body. Anxiety motivates us. And now if we're taking away the term anxiety from um, the medical way of looking at it, where you, when you've got people with high levels of anxiety, but normal levels of anxiety motivates us. So if I don't have that sort of butterflies in my stomach, that nervousness feeling when I'm about to go onto stage or do an event, then I don't care. I'm not motivated to be my best. I'm like, oof, there, there you go. Um, off I go. So it's really important, again, that we, we differentiate between going, I don't want to feel anxious. And interestingly, that feeling, that anxious, nervous feeling is the exact physiological symptoms in the body as excitement. So to be able to say, if you are going to speak on a stage or get onto a rugby pitch or get onto a stage and perform, I'm really excited about doing this. You're not changing the feeling. You're just changing what your brain is hearing, which means then you're going to respond differently. You put burnout in there. Burnout is where our bodies get depleted of adrenaline and our cortisol levels. Because unlike with stress, if we're in a stressful situation, we have that cortisol rise. Once we're out of the stressful situation, because it's not continual, our, our levels reduce back down. With burnout, we're in continual stress. So our bodies are literally like the elastic band being pulled tighter and tighter and tighter. And we are getting defeated, which is where we start to see medical issues. And interestingly, with burnout, in order to give the cortisol, the stress response, that push, we get a release of, of glucose into our bodies. And that gives us the energy. So if we're in constant burnout, if we're constantly stressed, we're constantly using the glucose storage as well, which is why people who are under stress have a tendency to crave sugar more. And by that, it's not just sugary foods, the carbohydrates, stuff like that. You're also going to see, for those that do drink, and possibility of increased dependency on alcohol because of the sugar content from it, because it's seen as a perceived distressor and it's replacing temporarily the glucose storage. So it goes in peaks and troughs again. Okay. The word dread, where does dread kind of fit into it? Like someday you might hear somebody, I'm dreading this presentation or I'm dreading having this meeting with somebody or the confrontations might come up. You know, there's, is, is that kind of, almost bordering into depression and is there a kind of closeness to those that's interesting very interesting question i think i, got, I, got, it, I told you i'd get one new one for you anyway. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't prepared for that one but you know i think the power of language is phenomenal what we say to ourselves flippantly has such negative effect on ourselves it's like the pants or i should have so i'm dreading doing that 
maybe because you haven't for a presentation or you haven't prepared enough for it. I'm dreading going into work tomorrow um, because you have a meeting that you don't want to do. So we use very strong language. And I think we have a tendency to use very harsh language to describe situations because we, we want to expect the worst because then that allows us nearly to go into a state of, well, there you go, you know, that didn't work out or that was awful. Or we don't, if it didn't work out, we've lowered our expectation of ourselves in order to then not feel bad. But I think dread is a, dread's a really interesting. And it's funny, I don't hear, it's not a word I hear clients use an awful lot. I'm going to have to be more attuned to that because I think it's quite a good word. Yeah. It, if, you were to, if you do the five whys, you ask why, and somebody gives you the answer, and you drill it all the way down five times, you may see that actually it's just because I have another presentation I have to do. So red isn't as severe as what the person thinks it is or uses the word for, but they're embedding that language into a state of fear because red here they're all quite strong negative words yeah i think one of the things i've always kind of leaned back on is our five seven primary emotions and i think five of the seven are naturally negative feelings um and i suppose if you strip back the word dread and and dig it down to what one of those negative emotions it could be yeah it's probably one of the or one of the seven it's probably a negative one and that's the root cause perhaps well i think as well if you think going back to caveman we, we live and exist as adults and probably teenagers as well, older teenagers in a state of negative bias because we've gone out for the first time hunting back in caveman and we've encountered the bear and we've had a horrible experience. You know, it may have ended up with us killing, but we still got into that, that high stress situation. So we go back home to our cave and we go back out a week later, we know we now know the bear could be there. So we now need to think of the worst possible situation in order to keep ourselves safe. So we don't skip out of the cave going, life is great because we now have to protect ourselves. So we're in that negative bias and that's that's in our DNA. So when we talk as well, you know, about positive psychology of being happy, we really have to push people to change the way they think because it's automatically instinctive. There is a protective layer deep, deep within us in order to keep us safe. Yeah. And when you get into the positive psychology, I think, isn't it like the five to one ratio of, of trying to give yourself positive affirmations because five of them would, would equal just one negative because the, the power of the negatives. Yeah. The, the negatives are so strong. And, and don't get me wrong. I do think at times we need to sit with the negative emotions. I think the the flip side of the whole positive psychology um, is I don't think we can exist in a world where we're continually happy. That's not good for us either. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. Um, So as we talked about those three and and kind of areas of of being stressed and overwhelmed and, and even burnout, obviously, at the core, when we look at tools, Siobhan, that people can implement to to deal with with all of those or some of those, what are what are the 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 ones that maybe are easily applied and that people can self manage and self regulate those uh, challenges? So I call them the four pillars, 
And as much as I am, um, I practice mindfulness and I practice gratitude, I call those nearly like the fluffy pillows. They're, that's the good stuff. That's the stuff that you put on top. Before you put the pillows and the nice comforter on your bed, you need your four corners. It's like describing putting on the sheet, a fitted sheet onto a bed. You've got four corners. You get three of them, which I'll tell you now, are sleep, nutrition, exercise, and your fourth is clutter. You get three of those corners of the bed all nicely done, and you really struggle to get the fourth one. And you get it to halfway, and the bed is still a little bit creased. So, yes, you can still exist. You can sleep in the bed. It's fine, but it's not perfectly aligned. You're not getting your optimum sleep. If you have all four of your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and clutter, they're your four focuses. That's when you're giving yourself the best opportunity to deal with everything else. And when of those four, really the most important is sleep. And I think we're only starting to now see the importance of sleep. For years and years, it's been like a badge of honor of I only had four hours sleep. I just I was up, I was running, I was at the gym, I did two hours work, I stayed up till eleven, I was on to mistakes on a call or I was doing more, more work, whatever it is, we need eight hours sleep. Because if we're not getting eight hours sleep, our sense of cognitive reasoning is impaired. The research that's come out of sleep is sleep deprivation causes more accidents on the roads than alcohol. So we don't we don't get into cars drunk. Well, I hope we don't because we're mindful of that. But yeah, we'll get into a car with three or four hours sleep and think we're okay or continual. And interestingly, when I talk about sleep for anybody who's going, yes, but I have a new baby or I have a toddler and I'm up or I have three under five or I'm not talking about that sleep interruption because actually for mums, especially mums, we have oxytocin that is released when we are those primary caregivers. And that actually works to help regulate the sleep deprivation when you're a young parent. What I'm talking about is when you have the opportunity to sleep, but you're not sleeping and you're getting into that habit. When I talk about nutrition, it's it's also about using alcohol as a perceived distressor, using food as a perceived distressor. If we're eating well, we're fueling our bodies to be able to sleep well and we're fueling our bodies to be able to exercise and we're fueling our bodies to be able to have the energy and mental capacity to be able to look at the clutter in our lives and by the clutter I'm not just talking about chaos around us I'm talking about toxic relationships that we keep in our lives that we don't necessarily even have the energy to be able to let go of or make those decisions about distancing ourselves so with sleep, I, 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 people know this, you know, not to have phones in beds, televisions in bedrooms, sitting up in bed, watching Netflix till one in the morning on the laptop. It's personal responsibility. It's not digital detox because that's giving up and feeling disconnected and then going back two weeks later and still scrolling. And talking about that level of personal responsibility of going, actually, you know what, as soon as I get into my bedroom, everything is on, do not disturb, silent, or left outside the room. 
So give yourself that dance. I actually use, um, I got gifted. Um, I My children think it's funny that I call myself an influencer because I got gifted uh, a Lumi light, um, L-U-M-I-E, the most magnificent thing I've ever been given. So I have it set at night time to it's bright, full, full bright light. And over 20 minutes, it goes down into complete darkness. So it promotes my melatonin levels. Right. And then I have it set in the morning. Um, it starts very, very low light. And it naturally makes my room really bright. So by the time I wake up, there's no noise, no alarm has gone off. I, I, that actually wakes me up as if it was daylight. Well, that's that's uh, definitely something I must look into because um, I would use an alarm. I'm pretty good sleeper. Would go to bed really relatively early, but get up pretty early. And uh, yeah, <laughs> excuse me. The days I I don't get the the right amount of sleep definitely notice. Um, just not being sharp enough and you know it can it can have an impact the clutter piece i'm very interested in uh, what came to mind there can somebody do like a clutter assessment of, of their of their lives and how do you define what clutter is you say as you said it's relationships what other variables might be within clutter so i'd look at relationships i think it's one of the things that we have a tendency to do i think it's globally it's not just here in ireland is that we stay in friendships, um, out of a sense of obligation, of looking at, you know, I should go and see this group of people. I've known them since I was 10. I was in school with them. But we evolve, we change, and we don't necessarily have anything in common with those people. Not that they're bad people. There's nothing. It's not about that. It's about being with people that make you feel supported and who you support as well because it's not one-sided and that can be personal relationships it can be parents it can be siblings it's not just the friends and you know of course you can't turn around and go well I'm not going to see my parents anymore on a Sunday but it might be that you see them four times a week and it is a case of actually when I when I spend time with my mum or dad I come away still feeling like a 12 year old it's, it's time to start going, you putting boundaries in place and saying, I'm not going to do that to myself. That that's okay. That prepare yourself that you're only going to do it once. I have a, a brilliant um, visual, but I also get clients to do this. You know, they go, yeah, but I was out for coffee with whoever. And they were saying there was negativity and they were talking about other people. And I go, physically, don't even think about it physically bend down and pretend to tie your shoelace because when you do that you're letting all that stuff fly right over your head because otherwise we get into conflict and we're trying to justify ourselves or we're arguing back trying to get our point across when it isn't necessarily going to be received on the other side Mm. Yeah, I think sometimes in those scenarios, I might just pretend to get a phone call and just walk out and and uh, talk to myself for a minute or something just to avoid it. Um, it's interesting as well when you're, you know, I'm sure people that have friends from decades ago, but still have that obligation when they're going to meet them or have said, oh, yeah, I'll meet you at the weekend. And they instantly maybe feel 
uh, you know, God, uh, uh, maybe dread is the word that comes up again, or or, or just wh- why am I giving in to that? Um, in the past, I would have felt that, but I, I would have kind of mixed it up to say, God, that just means I have to go to a social environment where there's a lot of people, and that could be more the introverted kind of signal versus I don't really want to be there. Is there any advice on how people can maybe tune into that feeling or, or, or you know, take that first step of, of pushing back? Well, I think, and I think those those large environments um, and social gatherings are really important. If you're going and you know that there's going to be one or two people that you are very connected with, um, make sure that you go with them and stay with them. It, you don't have to go and speak to everybody else. To be, to sit with yourself, I think being able to do and understand, and it goes back to what we were talking about, understanding are you an introvert or an extrovert? So and there is many online uh, free tests that you can do because also, funny enough, sitting in the middle of the introvert extrovert is ambivert. You know, it's somebody who does like social gatherings but also needs to replenish their energy by being on their own. But also, if you're going to something and you know that this is not a social gathering that you really want to be at, make the decision to bring the car that you then have that personal responsibility to go, I'm leaving now. You don't need to give a reason why you're leaving. You're not putting your hand up in school to say, I, I, can I go to the bathroom? But I think we get so stuck, we don't want to hurt other people's feelings by saying, oh, I'm leaving early or I'm not going to the pub after the dinner that we've been at. That's okay, you can do that. And here's the thing. Other people's opinions of you are none of your business. So if that group of people go to the pub after the dinner or they're at the social event and you've left and they chat about you leaving and you're worried about it, it's none of your business. That's yeah. what they're going to chat about yeah. anyway. Absolutely. So it's about, it's about getting to that point where you're comfortable with what your needs are. Mm. Agreed. And I, I can honestly say I can never, I've never not fully enjoyed walking away from uh, the end of a dinner saying no I gotta go home that feeling of taking control and driving home and waking up the next day knowing you you know looked after yourself you gave yourself care it's it's really powerful you know as opposed to stick sticking around for the next two hours and regretting it and giving yourself a hard time because you did you know and I actually think it's interesting if I was to do something like that and I don't know if you agree with me on this um, and stay till one, two in the morning, I would wake up the next day with the equivalent of an almighty hangover, even though I hadn't been drinking, because my energy levels would be so through, or it could take me two to three days to actually put myself back together again, that I was able to function and interact with people. Yeah. No, it would because I think what what is very important for me, as I've figured out over the last few years as the introvert is getting up at a certain time every day and spending that first hour of the day doing stuff for myself like it reading or you know editing or writing stuff and once I've done that I feel like I've achieved something that day and the days that I don't if my schedule gets thrown out a little bit and I didn't plan for it um it can set me off on a, on, a, on a bad foot you know it's it's really interesting when I was writing the book I used to get up at 5:30 and because my brain was firing on all cylinders because I'd slept well the night before but don't ask me 
to do it at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but I would get up at 5.30 and I was more productive between 5.30 and 7.30 before I get the boys up than I would probably be for the rest of the day. And it's it, it and, and it's funny because I don't get up. I try very hard to get up at 5.30 when I can, but my kids are a couple of years older now. They go to bed a little bit later. Um, and, you know, that's where when I talk about we can't be very rigid with ourselves. We have to... to do what I call mini life audits all the time. So I don't let my kids, like I think a lot of people, I don't let them have their phones overnight in their bedrooms. So they are kids, so they don't willingly drop them into me. I have to wait and get them off them. And I don't do, so I get their phones before you know I get myself ready to go to bed. And then somebody goes, oh, I didn't have my rugby kit or um, I forgot to do this or can whatever happens. So my bedtime has got later because of that, not because I'm sitting watching Netflix or TV. And so I have to take that into account. Because if I'm still trying to get up at 5, 5.30, I'm not getting my sleep. Yep. And then we're back into that not on effect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Be adaptable and, and be open to change for sure. And planning it, I think, is most important as well, because like that, if you don't plan it and don't, you don't for, foresee some of those changes, then you're, you're going to be chasing your tail and it's not going to work out too good. Sean, you're, you're, I would consider you probably a lifelong learner. So somebody that loves to continually learn and grow and develop and, and pass that forward, obviously. What's the, the most standout thing you've learned in the last few months that, that has made a difference for you? I think understanding how important it is the whole introvert extrovert that it is not just getting somebody into a company to do Meyer Briggs or to do the colors uh, insights that's brilliant but that's very focused on how from a business perspective you interact but how about we look at how we learn? So there is an NLP exercise that you can do that shows you how we learn and how we communicate and how we pass on information, whether it's auditory, visual, kinesthetic, uh, or emotional even. And I did a talk um, last month in a company, and I did this with them. It was about 60 or 70 people. And, and they were all senior management And I thought this might be a little bit fluffy for them. They were blown away to see the nodding heads in the room was like that. That's where we need that emotional intelligence, that understanding. We're not robots. You cannot expect two people working in the same job, doing the same task, the same academic abilities to take on information in the same way. So we need as leaders to be able to have the ability to convey information and to to teach leaders how to do that so they can pass it on to the next level and the next level. Because if we're not doing that, and it's not about everybody, you know, allowing for hugging trees and and you know I don't I minding exactly how you say something to someone else for fear of hurting their feelings but it is to a certain extent because if we don't as leaders within companies start to understand that you can put as many beanbags 
out there as you want and as many subsidized campaigns, but you are going to see layers upon layers of people through this generation and the next generation experiencing burnout because they don't know how to manage themselves. Mm -hmm. Very much true. And I think to that point as, as well, there seems to be more of an awareness and a rise of introverts being okay to be introverts in corporate environments and they don't you don't have to be extroverted and shouting and screaming as a leader so that bodes well for the likes of us i guess into the future another yeah. thing i would say maybe you've you didn't think of but you've learned how to put together an online course over the last while maybe you want to talk a little bit about that yes that's been a big learning curve so working with my clients one-to-one and, and it's been brilliant that i took that online so i work remotely um right it allows me to work with people um outside of Dublin. um but i then thought well how if i created an online course how would this work so i put together a 10-week online course and it still didn't sit with me i thought no i'm now they, why they may as well just buy the book so they may as well sit in the room with the book, work through it. There's worksheets in the book with everything that, that I could provide. So what I created was what I call, it's an online e-learning 10-week course on burnout and building resilience. It's tutor-led. So what I do is once a week, when the course starts, because it starts at a specific date and runs for 10 weeks, it's not something you just buy and start on your own. You're part of a learning support group. And once a week, there is a live Q&A session. So prior to that, it's on video link, prior to that, people can send through anonymously questions about whatever that topic is that week or they're experiencing, and we go through those. So that if somebody has something that they don't want to voice in front of others, they may be from the same company, that I answer. So not only does that person benefit from what the answer is, Everybody else who's on the call does as well. And there is, so they get that social interaction because I think that's for me one of the things, you need to be very disciplined with e-learning if you're doing a course on your own. And I wanted my clients to be able to have that facility that they still had a touch point with me. So the Burnout Solution Program is, I suppose, a step up from the book and it's accessible for those that can't do the one-to-one coaching with me. Hmm. And it gives you that personal touch, I think, because a lot of the online stuff is very on-demand and there's no real interaction and that can be a bit yeah. uh, stale, I guess, sometimes. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that we need to look at for a lot of the online courses. Um, it means that companies, if it's a company buying the course for a certain member number of staff, they can have anything up to 100, all still on the one program, that they're facilitating what could be maybe too expensive for them to afford for 100, to send 100 staff to one-to-one. And some people may be experiencing burnout. Some people may be interested in doing it to avoid it. Some may be doing it because they're leaders and they want to know what the signs are and how to support their teams. So you can have very varied. It's not just going to be full of people who are actually in the depth of, of burnout. 
it's HR right through it can be factory level. No, that's great. Siobhan, look, I think we've uh, come up past our uh, a lot of time which is always a good sign things go really quick when you're uh, enjoying the conversation and, and learning about it so thanks for sharing everything there as always just to wrap up how folks can get in touch with you maybe email your website and talk a little bit about your book it's so uh website is twistingthejar.com uh, email is siobhan at siobhanmurray.com uh, social media is all twisting the jar that's linkedin um, Instagram, Twitter, and I do touch in and out of Facebook. Um, I have to say, I love social media. Um, I think it is getting vilified left, right, and center. Um, but from a business perspective, I have made so many amazing connections. If it wasn't for social media, we wouldn't have connected in the first place and supported each other. You know, so I, I do think we need to be a little bit kinder to ourselves. Um, the book, The Burnout Solution, is available on Amazon, Eason's, Gray, um, all good local bookstores um, are stocked as well. If they don't, they'll put it in. And there are worksheets within the book um, to be able to fill in and gauge how you're progressing through over the 12 weeks. Mm, yeah no it sounds sounds great and I, I was hoping to talk a bit about how you put the book together maybe another time because i'm fascinated about the process first time authors go through you know try to figure out how to get it all together but as you said the five thirty to seven thirty every day helps to to brain dump stuff out there so brilliant and javon lastly happy international women's day uh i said i was meant to say that at the start but i got it in at the end it was great to chat to you look forward to sharing this in the future oh thank you so much it's been an utter pleasure hey folks thanks so much for listening to the show if you enjoyed it could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. And it will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, 
but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.